You're listening to Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 10, Into the Badlands, Part 2 of 3. Gwen pulled up to the ranch entrance gate and got out of her truck, as a soft orange sun was just beginning to kiss the horizon. After a long day at work, she was looking forward to finally getting home and seeing the family. After driving through, she closed the gate behind her and jumped back into her truck, and is just about to switch the engine back on when a shadow falls across the dashboard. Turning to look out the window, she is startled to see a large pair of eyes, more black than blue, staring right back at her through the glass. It is a wolf, and it's almost as tall as the truck. It had been a few months since the Shermans had moved into their new ranch. After their strange encounter with the wolf on the first day, more wolves had since been seen loitering around the place, It was almost as if they were stalking the family. Concerned for the livestock that is due to arrive in a matter of weeks, the family has no choice but to bring the matter up with the local tribal office who oversee the Uinta and Ure reservation. It was there they believed the wolves were coming from. The following day, after seeing the wolf by her car, Gwen makes the short trip to the reservation office in nearby Fort Duchesne. But when she requests to speak to someone about the wolves running wild on her land, she is met only with a bemused silence. An official politely informs Gwen that no such animals live on the reservation. As they explain, not only would they not be kept as pets, but wolves have not been indigenous to the region since the 1930s, when they have been slaughtered as part of a national extermination campaign. The Sherman's cattle arrives in mid-November, 40-odd black Simmental heifers, along with four prized bulls. The family is also joined by three blue healers, expert cattle herding dogs. One evening, Terry is out looking for stray cows with his son and his nephew when he spots a set of headlights from what appears to be a truck parked up about half a mile to the west. Assuming it to be trespassers, the three of them set off towards the vehicle, but as they draw near, it starts to move away from them. Terry breaks into a jog to keep up with it, but there's something strange about what he's chasing. An ordinary truck would be bumping up and down over the rugged terrain, while the beams of its headlights would also bounce up and down accordingly, and yet the lights on this vehicle stay perfectly set in one position. Eventually, with no place to go, the vehicle comes to a stop opposite a thick clump of trees bordering the western edge of the ranch, While Terry, his son and his nephew take a moment to catch their breath, something extraordinary is said to have happened. The vehicle, which they can now see is cuboid in shape and no longer than five feet in length, 
appears to lift straight up from the ground. Moments later, it clears the tallest of the cottonwoods, flashing red and white lights underneath as it turns smoothly and silently before flying off into the night. When Terry relays this story to Gwen later that night, he is surprised to hear that she has also been seeing strange things, other flying objects, black and triangular in shape, that seem to follow her truck down the entrance drive, as well as vehicles parked up in the fields that suddenly disappear. After seeing one vehicle vanish in front of her eyes, she trekked out to the spot where she believed it had been parked. At first she saw no evidence of anything having been there at all, until she spotted what looked like footprints in the dirt, only they were twice the size of any foot she'd ever seen. A few weeks later, one night, Terry spots a weird golden orb in the sky, just above the trees to the western end of the ranch. When it's still there a few days later, Terry once again finds himself staring up at it in bemusement when it suddenly expanded in size. Terry could not believe what he was seeing. With the orb now much bigger, there appeared to be something inside it, or rather, through it. As Terry later said, it was as if he could see a whole other landscape bathed in sunlight, as if he were looking through a window in the sky to another world where it was currently daytime. Then, a black object seemed to fly out of it, but he lost sight of it shortly after. Though undoubtedly strange, the family are reluctant to draw any wild conclusions from the peculiar events. They speculate that the most likely explanation is that some kind of military experiments are going on. In any case, these oddities are soon forgotten when a bitter winter draws in that by the turn of the new year has claimed the lives of two of their herd. By the time spring arrives, three more of the Sherman's cattle succumb to the harsh conditions and all memory of strange flying objects and gigantic wolves has long been forgotten. But all that is about to change. Terry is rounding up cattle when he hears his son T's cries. He arrives to find him retching by the banks of the canal behind the ranch and pointing to a spot for Terry to go and investigate. Moments later, as a torrential rain starts to lash down, Terry is waist deep in the canal tying a thick rope around a dead heifer's back legs. Together with Terry's horse, he and his son haul the animal from the water. Terry sinks to the ground exhausted as the rain streams down his face. On the ground before him lies the heifer, minus its rear end, which appears to have been completely removed with surgical precision. The cow's insides are also gone, but there is no sign of blood anywhere. Perhaps it's one of the wolves, says T, but Terry isn't so sure. No, he thinks, this 
is something else entirely, something he has never seen before. It'll prove to be only the first of many bizarre cattle mutilations that will plague Terry and Gwen over the next few months. Towards the end of April 1996, Terry is sitting outside the ranch one evening after another grueling day, basking in a warm sunset with his three trusted blue healers by his side. At some point, one of the dogs begins to growl, causing him to sit up in his chair. It must have been several hundred yards away and roughly about the size of a tennis ball. It looks as if it were made entirely from blue electrical sparks. With the dogs barking manically, Terry gives them a nod, at which point they tear off instantly in pursuit of the strange blue orb. Terry soon grows concerned, however, when the dogs chase the thing to the edge of a copse before following it into the trees and disappearing into the undergrowth. When Terry heads back inside later that evening, he reassures the children that the dogs will find their way back home. The following morning, the healers have not returned. So Terry heads out to find them. Stepping through the trees where he'd seen them last, he detects a distinct smell of burnt flesh mingling with the morning dew and sagebrush. Pushing through to a clearing beyond, Terry soon discovers to his horror the source of the smell. Three circles of dried grass, each with their own gooey mess, piled up on top. The remains of his dogs. The loss of the much-loved dogs is devastating for Terry and the rest of the family, who are beginning to feel increasingly terrorised by the weird events. For the first time, Terry is thoroughly rattled and worried for his family's safety. With no one else to talk to, he seeks help from local resident, Junior Hicks, who introduced himself to the family a few months previously after first hearing about the strange events taking place on their ranch. Hicks is a retired high school science teacher from the nearby town of Roosevelt. Hicks has spent a lifetime trying to convince people that there's something peculiar happening around the Uintar Basin, but even he isn't sure what to make of the recent happenings at what is now the Sherman Ranch. Hicks's fascination with the area stems mostly from a number of local sightings of UFOs in the early 1950s, in particular, a sighting recorded in 1952 by a Navy warrant officer named Delbert Newhouse that took place near Tremonton, Utah, just to the north of Salt Lake City. While driving through Utah on their way to vacation in Portland, Oregon, Newhouse and his wife Norma, along with their son Delbert and daughter Anne, spotted 12 saucer-shaped objects, identical in size, flying in the air above their car. Newhouse estimated the objects to be similar in size to B-29 bomber planes if they'd been flying at 10,000 feet. 
After watching them for a short time, Newhouse grabbed his film camera from the boot of his car and proceeded to record the objects for a number of minutes. The footage he captured remains to this day one of the most compelling in the annals of ufology. For Terry, being able to talk openly with Hicks without any fear of judgment was a welcome relief, but what Hicks would later tell him after they'd inspected the remains of the dogs together was far from reassuring. Hicks had documented over 400 cases of strange sightings within the Uinta region alone, ranging from balls of electricity to black triangular objects flying overhead, just like what Gwen had seen. And this isn't the first time that strange things had occurred on the ranch. According to Hicks, the former owner, Edith Myers, spoke regularly of bizarre goings-on at the homestead whenever she ventured into town. Hicks himself, who claimed to have worked at the ranch carrying out small jobs for Edith, had also noticed little oddities occurring there, such as compasses behaving irregularly. Hicks has a number of theories for what might be going on, but there is one in particular that proves especially unsettling to the Shermans. One afternoon, Junior Hicks brings round a map of the local region to the Sherman's home. After spreading it out in front of Terry, he picks out the position of the Sherman ranch, noting how it seems unnaturally snipped out of the surrounding Uintar and Ure reservation. It wouldn't be the first time a piece of land had been confiscated from indigenous communities and sold off. But the Sherman Ranch is a decidedly different proposition, since the local Native American Nooch community, as Hicks explains, had never wanted anything to do with it in the first place. While the Nooch were being pressed on each side by newcomers hungry for the land they occupied, they were forced to enter into a series of strategic alliances in the last bid for survival. One such alliance came at a bloody cost for the neighbouring Diné people, later named Navajo by settlers from Spain. In retaliation, so the story goes, one night the Diné medicine men gathered under the cover of darkness and, while illuminated by the flickering flames of a ritual fire, danced and chanted a curse upon the Nooch and their land. Ever since, the tribe have considered themselves haunted by the embodiment of this curse, terrifying shape-shifting witches they call Yi Naaldalushi, otherwise known as skinwalkers. The skinwalker of Dene folklore exists only to bring death or ill harm to any who come across it. They like to take a non-human form, most often as a coyote or a wolf. Once changed, it will start to seek out its prey, stalking them at night and occasionally sprinkling the dust of ground children's bones into their victims' homes to cause sickness. According to Junior Hicks, the local nooch 
considered the entirety of the tabletop ridge at the north end of the Sherman's Ranch to be part of the Skinwalker's domain, and as such, were terrified to go anywhere near it. In fact, the ridge is even known locally as Skinwalker Ridge. There is one place in particular, according to Hicks, that is especially feared, a place called Dark Canyon, located just over 30 miles to the north of the ranch. It is thought that many of the ancient petroglyphs, prehistoric rock drawings, found within the canyon are in fact depictions of these terrifying creatures. It is also there that some believe new skinwalkers are created, where tribal witches, dressed in masks and beads, gather in caves lined with human heads, singing discordant songs around rising fires as they draw pictures in the dirt, before spitting and defecating on their markings as they summon another skinwalker into existence. Junior Hicks also explained to the Shermans that to the Nooch, the sighting of a wolf or a dog in strange circumstances was evidence enough that they had seen a skinwalker, and any such sighting was deemed a portent of immediate danger to their families. Terry thought back uneasily to that early encounter with the wolf that would not be killed, and the time a huge wolf-like creature had approached Gwen's truck. Although Terry tried to ignore Hick's warnings, there was no ignoring the number of dead and mutilated cattle that continued to mount up, and the effect it was all having on the family's mental health, not to mention finances. The final straw comes late one evening in July, after the family settles down for the night. Terry notices the lights in the yard are flickering on and off. Then the inside lights start to dim and flicker too. Seconds later, Gwen lets out a horrifying scream when she catches sight of another orb gently hovering around the homestead, lingering by the window as if it's watching them. Moments later, it is gone, but the Shermans have had enough. By the end of that summer in 1996, they have lost a total of 14 cattle in two years, and the stress of it all was exerting a heavy toll. Gwen is on the verge of losing her job at the local bank due to all the sleepless nights and missed hours, and the children's grades at school are suffering too. In the end, the Shermans decide it is time to sell. They are just in the process of putting the ranch up for sale when they receive a phone call from someone in Las Vegas calling on behalf of a man named Robert Bigelow. As the caller explains, a few days earlier, Bigelow had been alerted to an article in Utah's Deseret News about the weird happenings at the Sherman Ranch. Without even wishing to view the property, Bigelow is willing to make an immediate offer of $200,000 to take the ranch off their hands. The Shermans don't think twice.
when Robert Bigelow was a young boy. He listened with astonishment as his grandparents recounted a story in matter-of-fact terms about the time an alien spacecraft had once buzzed their car as they made their way down a country road just outside of Las Vegas. The craft had apparently shot off at an acute angle and disappeared into the distance before they were able to get a proper look at it. Later, Bigelow became a multi-millionaire through his hospitality company, Budget Suites of America, but the wonder of hearing his grandparents' story had never left him. In the early 1990s, with significant financial means, Bigelow began funding a series of fringe science projects through the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. The programs were designed to cover a wide area of study investigating various phenomena such as near-death experiences, altered states of consciousness and extrasensory perception. By 1996, he was ready to take his fascination to another level. Colum Kelleher was a bright young biochemist working at the National Jewish Center for Immunology in Denver when he came across a job recruitment ad in science placed by something calling itself the National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS. The institute, set up by Robert Bigelow, sought to bring together PhD-level scientists from across the scientific spectrum to investigate paranormal phenomena. It listed as its remit the modest intention to study the origin and evolution of consciousness in the universe. Kelleher was instantly hooked and without hesitation applied for the job. A few weeks later, he is on a plane to Las Vegas to take up his new role as an NIDS research manager. On his arrival in Vegas, Kelleher finds Bigelow to be an engaging, intelligent and ambitious character who is genuinely and deeply committed to the organization's goals. This commitment is echoed loudly by the team of personnel so far brought to the table, including two of the only 12 humans ever to have walked on the moon, Dr. Harrison Schmidt and Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Alongside them is retired US Army Colonel John Alexander, a Special Forces A-Team commander during the American-Vietnamese War. Alexander had become a controversial figure due to his interest in non-lethal defence and the potential of mind control in warfare. With the newly assembled NIDS team eager to get out into the field to put their investigative skills to the test, Bigelow suggests the Sherman Ranch as their first case study and in September 1996, they move onto their new homestead. A huge observation trailer is installed opposite the ranch house and loaded with all the latest tech to conduct their investigations, including spectrum and frequency analyzers and recording equipment utilizing the latest in CD-ROM-based storage. A bank of monitors is assembled, 
piled up alongside boxes of magnetometers and Geiger counters, useful for recording any radioactive discharges that might be taking place. Despite their eagerness to leave the property, Terry and Gwen had not been entirely ready to give in. They'd taken it as a personal affront that the family was effectively run off their land and arranged a deal with Bigelow to not only keep cattle on the ranch, but also to assist the NIDS team as property managers of what would henceforth be known as Bigelow Ranch. When the team arrives, Terry takes Colm Kelleher and the others on a tour of the property to get a sense of what exactly they're up against. As they walk, the team listens in rapt as Terry recounts the events of the past few years. On that bright September day, as the chirrup of crickets mixes with the lowing of distant cattle and a warm breeze drifts over the pastures, it isn't hard to see why the Shermans had resisted leaving for so long. Moments later, Terry, Kelleher and another colleague are staring down at the putrid carcass of a cow, one of two from the farm next door that had died in the last few days from mysterious circumstances. The next day, Bigelow's team begin by compiling witness testimonies from the neighbouring ranch families and reservation residents, which over the following months reveal a startling number of bizarre and inexplicable experiences that have occurred over the years. In tandem with these reports, in the day, the team take electromagnetic readings and test the land for levels of radiation. Come the night, they take it in turns to sit under the stars and gaze up at the sky in the hope of spotting anything unusual. By December, the snows arrive, and as the temperature continues to drop, Terry moves most of the cattle to the family's new ranch, located 20 or so miles away. Colm Kelleher and the rest of the NIDS team bring the first stage of their investigations to a close and return back to their Las Vegas headquarters. In February, the cattle return to the Bigelow Ranch. Two weeks later, Terry is tagging some of the new arrivals. Having singled one out, he quickly grabs it by the head and wrestles it to the ground. Its mother watches nervously as Terry punches the first tag quickly through its ear. Terry waits for the calf to settle down again, then takes the other ear and swiftly punches in a second tag. The calf is released in a flurry of jerking movements, trying to shake off the pain as it stumbles back to the safety of its mother. A short time later, Terry and Gwen are inspecting the rest of their animals when an anxious barking catches their attention. One of their healers appears to have spotted something on the edge of the field. It wanders off to investigate and is soon yapping at something in the undergrowth. Then, without warning, she sprints off into the scrub. Moments later, a strange cry comes from within the herd. It is happening again. Terry runs to the mother whose calf he'd just tagged, 
but there is no sign of the younger animal until he notices the small leg bone freshly shorn of meat lying on the ground before him. Taking a few more steps, Terry comes across the rest of the butchered carcass. It is laid out on the grass with its legs splayed. Its organs have been ripped from the inside and its hide almost completely removed, exposing the ribs underneath. One of its ears has also been sliced off, but there isn't a speck of blood in sight. Terry steps back in shock and calls out for Gwen. Five hours later, having flown straight up from Vegas, Dr. Colm Kelleher, along with a physicist and veterinarian from the NIDS team, are standing over the remains. The three men swiftly get to work, fishing for magnetic and radioactive anomalies, anxiously eyeing the edges of the pasture as the machines bleep and hiss. It is clear from the way the animals are huddled together that something out there is watching them, and it's making the men nervous. Looking closely at the calf's ear, the vet remarks on the precision of the cut, and when the autopsy is finished, it is clear that if the culprit is an animal, it isn't something that any of them have ever seen before. On the edge of the herd, the calf's mother lolls her head and sniffs at the ground as she waits for the child that will never return. For Gwen and Terry, it is yet another animal lost to the high strangeness. And despite all the combined credentials of Bigelow's investigative team, no one can explain it. And things are about to get even more terrifying. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 10, Into the Badlands, Part 2 of 3. Part 3 will be released next Friday, November 24th. This episode was written by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.com.